0: Good morning. Hey, if you're a guest with us, we're glad that you're here this morning. Uh, my name is Rob. I'm one of the ministers here at New Hope, and I get the honor, and I really do believe it's an honor uh, to open God's Word with you this morning. I think he has something to say to us. Uh, that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're continuing in a series called This Is Us, where Paul writes to his young protege Timothy, who is in a city with a lot of difficulty doing ministry. And Paul wants to encourage him, telling him, hey, the church, uh, the, the people of God, this is how they live together. And so we're continuing the series, uh, This Is Us, uh, here in just a moment. If you would, if you take a moment, there's a Connect card in the seat back that's in front of you. Now, we say this often, but we believe that church is more than a seat on a Sunday. Uh, and we say that because we want to be connected to you. We believe that we have the greatest news in all the world, that Jesus did for us what we were powerless to do for ourselves And we want to come together around that truth. One of the ways we connect with you is when you fill out that Connect card. We can get you information about the church. We can pray for you. We can follow up if you have questions about certain things. You just fill that out. Toward the end of the service, you can drop it in the offering tray or stop at the Welcome Center where you can pick up information about the church, ask questions, and there'll be somebody there that would love to get you connected here at New Hope. If you've been here, uh, this is your church home. I want to invite you to fill one of those Connect cards out as well. Hey, we've got a special weekend coming up in just a few weeks called Missions Weekend. Now we're gonna have a meal packing event on that Saturday, November the 4th. Uh, You'll come in. If you register, you can jump online to find out more information about the meal packing event. We're trying to pack 12,000 meals to partner with IDES to help people in need. Uh, That's one of our uh, mission organizations that we are strategic partners with. In addition to that, we are collecting two things. So you as a family, as an individual, Or a discipleship group can partner with us as we're trying to partner with strategic partners around the world. So it really extends our reach, the reach of our vision, to be disciples making disciples. These two ways are the following. One is you can come together and decide to purchase a communion tray. And you might not think that's a big deal. But these trays are going to go to Poland and to Panama. they're going to be used with people that cannot afford a communion tray on their own. And so you think about it, in just a few moments after the sermon, we're going to take communion together and we just take it for granted. They need what we have, and so we can partner uh, together and provide that. You, again, just jump online and you can find out more. Last is we're collecting vitamins. I believe, I'm going to say this right, no gummies, so my kids can't help, and no, <laughs> and no uh, gel caps, just solid uh, vitamins, and you can drop them off at Kid Central. So go to Kid Central right where the kids check in and you can just drop a bottle of vitamins off. We're collecting as many things of vitamins as possible uh, to go to Brazil. They take this big boat and they go down the, uh, the river and they find unreached people and they're helping people and the vitamins go a long way. And so those are three ways that you can partner with us. As we're extending our reach around the world to be disciples, making disciples. I'm going to pray for us and we'll continue. Father, thank you uh, for church. Thanks that it's more than a stage. It's a group of people. Coming together, trying to follow Jesus. So this morning, Father, we're going to open your word. And I would pray that you would speak very clearly to us through it. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, last week David did a really excellent job working our way into 2 Timothy. And he talked about Paul's conditions uh, during the writing of this letter. The Apostle Paul was uh, in a prison underneath the ground. Two or three levels underneath the ground. Horrible conditions. And yet he pens the words to 2 Timothy. And as you read through it, you think, man, he had been through so much. And the question David asked last week, I've wrestled with it all week, so much so that we're going to explore it a little bit more today. The question that he asked last week was this. Under these type of deplorable circumstances, I mean, this guy was underneath the ground. Not only was it physically bad circumstances, but his reputation had been run through the mud. Nobody wanted to respect anybody who had spent any time in this prison. And here's Paul in the prison. And Paul had this unashamed love for Jesus. And the question David asked last week is just an excellent question to wrestle with. What is it that kept these guys going? I mean, what is it that under those circumstances would keep you going to take one more step? I mean, every day you wake up, what is it that would give you the ability to take one more step in the direction of the calling that God has placed on your life to bring him glory when you're under those type of circumstances? And I want to explore that just a little bit more today as we uh, work our way into 2 Timothy, the second part of the first chapter. I don't know if you're wired like me, maybe you are, maybe you're not, but I'm somebody who, when I get into the habit of doing certain things, uh, they can lose their effect on me, okay? Uh, There's multiple times where we've purchased, uh, let's just say, a new vehicle, and man, that new vehicle is just so exciting for a little while. And then we get into the routine of getting into the vehicle. My kids start losing french fries in the seats, and it just becomes this thing we have, right? It doesn't have its, ugh, that new effect on me anymore. Or uh, there's multiple times in my life where I've started something new thinking I'm going to do this thing. For me, it's been journaling, right? For whatever reason, when I was in graduate school, I got the impression that really like, strong, mature Christians journaled. <laughs> I don't know why. Yes, I said graduate school, not middle school, too. So it's like I was like way too old to have those uh, kind of thoughts. And so I would try journaling multiple times, only for it to fade. Uh, it just lost its ability to connect with me. I'm not a journaler. I'm not someone that can sit down and put my thoughts on paper uh, very easily. In fact, I don't like writing at all. Now, psychologists, they've studied this phenomenon. They call it habituation. Habituation. When a new stimulus is introduced into your environment, you are, at first, you're intensely aware of it, okay? But over time, it loses its ability. It fades, and you begin to habituate to its presence in your life. Here's an example. When you begin to wear a new watch, anybody have a watch? Hold up your hand if you're wearing a watch. Okay, when you first put that watch on, you're very aware that it's there. But after a while, your brain actually begins to ignore the weight of the watch. And unless that watch moves down your wrist and you feel it, you, you forget that it's there. A lot of times you do this with glasses. How many times I've asked my wife, hey, where are my sunglasses? And she's like, they're on your head, right? They're just sitting up on your head. Because my body is so, just completely ignores the weight of it. I've habituated to the presence of this. Now, if we're not careful, sometimes out of a really long habit, we can actually habituate to certain experiences that at one time had a tremendously powerful effect on our lives. So think back. There's certain things that have just, man, they've just blown you away. And then over time, you've habituated to that. It's no longer having that that powerful uh, presence in your life or that powerful impact on your heart. Uh, Philip Yancey is an author, and he talks about a time when he was at Yellowstone National Park. Uh, And he went to a restaurant with a lot of large windows. Picture this, a ton of large windows facing Old Faithful. And when the famous geyser, when when it erupted, he said, all the patrons, all the people seated at the tables, man, they flocked to the windows. and They were staring at the windows and they couldn't believe it. It was this incredible thing. It was so beautiful. But I I watched the servers and the workers. They didn't flinch. They didn't even look at the windows. They just kind of kept going, going about their business. They said they felt no awe. They had no impact on them whatsoever. They were so used to it that this incredible sight had no impact on them. See, after a long familiarity, they'd habituated. Now, I say all this because one of the reasons I think that we sometimes face a uh, A crisis of faith, a time where you begin to doubt, you begin to wonder, you begin to lose sight of certain things, is because we've habituated to the gospel. I mean, that impact that this truth had on you when it changed your life, over time, you can habituate to the impact that it has in your heart. And Paul understood this. You see, when we lose sight of its beauty, we can find ourselves questioning its power. When this happens, we grow weary, we get tired, and Sometimes we begin to doubt. Sometimes you begin to struggle. Sometimes you even wonder if you should share the gospel with your lost friends or the people that you love. It's not that you don't love Jesus or your lost friends. You just have habituated to the power the gospel has to change lives. And now you're at the point where you're wondering if it's exactly what your friend even needs. Right. There's been multiple times in my life where I've thought this person, what they really need is they need to start behaving better with their spouse and their marriage will get better or they need to get their money under control and their finances will get better. And really what I'm thinking in the back of my mind is there's got to be more than that. But I've habituated to this fact that those are symptoms of a deeper problem and that what they really need is to reconnect with the gospel. When you habituate to the gospel's impact on your own life, you will have a hard time seeing how powerful it can be in the lives of other people. Thus, we have more and more Christians not sharing the good news of Jesus with lost people. Because it's habituated on our own hearts. Paul addresses this in 2 Timothy. He knew that Timothy was going to be experiencing that kind of pressure. That kind of pressure to habituate to the truth of the gospel in his own life. And so he wanted to address it. So if you open to 2 Timothy... Uh, the handout you have says that we're going to start in verse 8, but I want to jump back to verse 6, because it's going to provide us just a touch of context for the following verses. Here's what Paul, someone who loved deeply this young man, Timothy, and he's writing to him because he cares about him, and he's just trying to share this truth with him. Here's what he writes to him. He says, for this reason, and he talked about this lineage of faith that he had. David talked about that last week. For this reason, I want to remind you, because you know this truth, fan into flame the gift of God in your life, Timothy which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And then he says in verse 7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So Paul says, hey Timothy, because of this lineage of faith, this long faith that's been passed on to you and the power of this faith and the mission God has called you to, let alone uh, just remember that he put his spirit inside of you and his spirit will make you bold, make you courageous, make you strong when you feel weak because that spirit is alive and living inside of you. You must remember the impact that the gospel had on your life. And he says, because of all of that truth, because the spirit of God lives inside of you, Timothy continues in verse eight, therefore, because of that, don't be ashamed. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of his prisoner, me his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, picture Timothy living in Ephesus for a minute, living in this city with all kinds of worship to all kinds of different gods. And Timothy standing on the truth and all this pressure put on him to conform. Not only that, picture this, he's probably leading a church where many people did conform and left because it was more popular, it was less pressure, it was more comfortable to follow one of these other gods than to follow the God of the Bible. And so Timothy, watching people come, not only that, like this city, I mean, when Paul left the city in Acts chapter 19, a riot broke out. I mean, this this is an intense place to live and to do ministry for Timothy. Not only that, they mocked, it's not just that they... Like, they didn't like the message of Jesus. They mocked it. This is pretty interesting. The earliest known picture of a crucifixion comes from Rome, and it's called the Alexamenos Graffito. Here's a picture of it. On, on, the, on your left, you're going to see the actual ar- artifact that they found, and then on the right, you're going to see a picture of it. What it is, it's a sketch of a human figure on a cross. The crucified man has the head of a donkey, and a young man beside the cross is looking at the crucifixion, and the caption reads Alexamenos worships God. And it's, it's a mockery, it's a widespread mockery of the gospel. This crucified Jesus, nothing more than a donkey. The story of Jesus is nothing that can impact your life. And continuing to mock the gospel. Look, here's the, friends, I just, mocking the gospel is nothing new. Considering the cross to be foolish, the message of Jesus to be foolish, it's nothing new. The Many in the world have thought that for ages and ages. Here's the problem, though. If you're not careful about your heart, and you begin to habituate to the power of the gospel in your life, and you add into it the pressure to conform and the mocking of the cross that takes place in the culture that we live in, it won't be long before you stop seeing the impact that truth has on your life. And here's the thing. When this happens, the problem's not the truth. And the truth is true. The the problem is, we've become numb to it. And the impact it has on our lives, let alone the lives that we're called to share it with. I don't know if you've ever been there where you really do believe Jesus, and you know he's called you to your workplace, but everybody at work makes fun of Jesus, makes fun of Christians, and they want nothing to do with the truth. And that pressure can kind of weigh on you. So instead of ever offering this good news to somebody, you just decide, I'm just gonna remain quiet or there's so much immoral activity that seems to be so much fun for everybody on your college campus, and there's this supposed intellectual open-mindedness that's taking place on your campus that's just such a powerful thing that you find yourself scared to actually make a decision that would seemingly go against everything that your college campus stands for. And in that moment, it becomes really difficult. And So instead of actually standing up because you're kind of scared of what might happen, And you're habituating to the truth of the gospel because you're doing nothing more than sitting in a seat on a Sunday. You find yourself wondering if it still has the power that it's always had and instead we conform and we stay quiet. You see, Paul knew that this was the type of pressure that would be placed on Timothy. And friends, I did years in youth ministry. The amount of pressure put on young people in our culture today is unbelievable. Let alone in the workplace, the marketplace, your neighborhood, your cul-de-sac, your own family... We're getting ready to come up into the holiday season and all these families are going to come together. And there's, I know there's multiple families in our church that have a lot of unbelieving, hostile family members that come into their home. And if we're not careful with our own heart, we will not have the heart to share that with them. Paul knew this. I want you to think about it this way. At the Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, Florida, they have a term that they use. It's called Max-Q. That's the name of this term. Max-Q takes place roughly one minute after a space shuttle launches. The shuttle must endure an extreme amount of pressure called maximum dynamic pressure. So all this pressure put on the vehicle. In fact, during an entire uh, space mission, this is the most pressure placed on the vehicle at any one time. It takes place about five to seven miles above the Earth's surface. And one pilot said it this way. He said, I remember seeing similar speeds at about 455 knots. You see, this is impossible to simulate, though. We try our best to simulate it. We cannot simulate this because there's this sound that builds as you get closer to maximum dynamic pressure. It's this high pitched whistling sound. And you just don't know what's about to take place as you approach it. But as you push through max Q, the pressure is released. This max Q type pressure is where you hope, at that moment, you've done all your homework that you put everything in place to prepare you for that pressure. And when properly prepared, we arrive safely. But when we don't prepare properly, the integrity of the vehicle is compromised. And lives are at risk. Maximum dynamic pressure. Max Q. What happens physically to the space shuttle is what happens spiritually to us and the culture we live in. And it happened to Timothy in Ephesus. This world places maximum dynamic pressure on believers to conform, to habituate to the truth of the gospel. And Paul says, when we... Choose not to. We suffer. It gets hard to stand up for Jesus in a culture that really puts the pressure to conform. Maximum dynamic pressure is difficult and it creates suffering. And Paul talks about that in verse 11. Jump down to verse 11. We'll come back up to 9. We're not skipping it. Up down to verse 11. He says this I was, for this reason, for the gospel, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. So he had m- so much to do in his calling. Watching over God's people, leading God's people, teaching God's people, preaching to the lost. He says, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed. I I suffer because there's so much pressure put on me. But I'm not ashamed to go through that. Remember, he's writing this from the third level of an underground prison. Okay? He says, I'm not ashamed. Why? Why are you not ashamed, Paul? He says, Because I know. Because I know there's the truth, whom I have believed. And I am convinced. Again, truth, he's done his homework. He didn't stumble into this. He didn't inherit this faith. He did his homework. He came to these conclusions. I'm convinced that he's able to guard until the day that he has entrusted to me and guard what he has entrusted to me until that day. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed to suffer when maximum dynamic pressure is placed on me and when everything in me wants to be weak, his spirit in me makes me strong. When everything in me wants to make a foolish decision, his spirit makes me wise. When everything in me wants to conform, his spirit makes my feet strong. And when that happens, the world bites back and it gets difficult and it can be hard. And he says, but I'm not ashamed of this because I know him. I'm intentionally not habituating to the truth of the gospel. I'm doing whatever it takes to make sure that it's fresh and new and alive inside of me so that in those moments when I need it, the integrity of my faith will not be compromised doing what I know I need to do. Now, here's the thing about suffering that I want to be really clear about. So please, just clue in just for a moment. Suffering is not something Paul sought out. Okay, Paul was not seeking to suffer. Okay, Many of us think that we have to somehow be self-imposed martyrs. And when that happens, what you're doing is habituating to the gospel. Because you're thinking you have to do something. You have to do something in order to earn his favor. And the gospel is the opposite of that. And so what we do is we seek out suffering. We seek out difficulty. We seek out opposition. Paul never did that. Please hear these words. I'm going to put them on the screen. And I want you to remember this. Paul was not on a crusade against the culture. He was on a mission to save the culture. See, when you read this, and he says that he suffers, and you read in all of his other letters that he suffered, and he went through difficulty and opposition, he wasn't running around saying, hey, mistreat me. Hey, abuse me. Hey, reject me. Hey, make this really hard on me. No, he was looking at these people and saying, you need Jesus, and I'm going to love as many people into the kingdom of God as I possibly can. And on that mission, he experienced opposition because the world doesn't know how to respond to a love like that. And so the culture, maximum dynamic pressure, put pressure on him. Many of us, we spend too much time fighting against the culture because we've habituated to the gospel's impact, and we feel that the only way change is going to happen is in our power. So we have to go out and fight. We have to go out and wage war. And Paul's saying, no, just go out and love people. The war will come. Difficulty will be there. When you love people the way Jesus loved you, when you pour into people the way that Jesus has poured into you, opposition will come. You don't have to go seeking it. And he says, how do you know this? He says, well, because of the gospel message. Now, back up to verse 9. He lays out the entire gospel message here. Look at verse 9. I share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of the but of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Jesus Christ before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality and light through the go- to light through the gospel. So He says, "This is all that Jesus." So Jesus did three different things. He says here, and I love this. Uh, Samuel Johnson said this sometimes in order to not habituate. We, need to be informed. we don't need to be informed of new truth as much as reminded of old ones. So when I say gospel, some of you clue out. You're like, yeah, I know the gospel. Yep, got it. But think about it this way. Let's walk through this. Paul says three things that the gospel does. It gives you grace for your past. That's the first thing. The gospel gives you grace for your past. He says, God saved us. Well, he had to have saved us from something. So he saved us. Now, is this something that we earned or deserved? Did, We live such incredible lives and He loves us so much that He looks at us and says, of course He saved us. We're worthy of Him saving us. Absolutely not. The very definition of grace is unmerited favor. Like you don't deserve it. You don't deserve it in the slightest bit. The whole point of grace is that you don't deserve it. You cannot be moral enough. You cannot accomplish enough. You cannot work hard enough for God to look at you and say that He loves you. Your sin has separated you from Him. And our sin has separated us from Him. He wants to love us. He wants to care for us. But our sin prevents that. And so his grace has to overcome what our sin could not do, what our own works could not accomplish for us. His grace has to overcome for us. I was sitting in uh, multiple homes over the last week, and there was this theme that kept coming up in conversations. And, and people would ask, hey, this thing is happening to me. It, it, it's like if I would just do better, God won't treat me like this. He won't let these things happen. And, and I had another conversation with somebody who had put so much pressure like maximum dynamic pressure, max Q-type pressure on their own life in order to earn God's love. Now, we look at that, we say, you can't earn God's love, but how many of you do this? If I don't behave this way, God will be upset with me. I have to do this. We put this legalistic behavioral terms on our lives. I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this for God to love me. And if I don't do this, then he won't love me. And I have to do this, do this. And I kept saying, hey, if this is the question I asked every single one of them. I just just want you to think about this question, and I would pose this question to you. If everything was determined by what you did to make God happy with you, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die if you had it within yourself to accomplish what you needed to do? See, the whole concept of grace is God looks at your past and he says, I love you anyway. You don't have to undo that. I'll undo it. I love you. I like the way that Marion Bird said, and I'm going to read uh, from her book, uh, The Whisper Test, she says this, I grew up knowing that I was different, and I hated it. See, I was born with a cleft palate, and when I started school, my classmates made it clear to me how I looked to others, a little girl with a misshaped lip and crooked nose and lopsided teeth and garbled speech. When my classmates asked, what happened to your lip, I'd tell them that I'd fallen and cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born different. I was convinced that no one outside of my family could love me. There was, however, a teacher in the second grade who we all loved, Mrs. Leonard. She was short, round, happy, a sparkling lady. Annually, we had a hearing test. Mrs. Leonard gave the test to everyone in the class, and finally, it was my turn. I knew from past years that as we stood against the door and covered one ear, the teacher sitting at her desk would whisper something, and we would have to repeat it back to her. You you know, things like the sky is blue, and... Do you have on new shoes? I waited there for those words that God must have put into her mouth. Those seven words that changed my life. Mrs. Leonard whispered to me, I wish you were my little girl. That's grace. God looks at you and he says, I wish you were my son. I wish you were my daughter. So I'll send Jesus to make sure that you are. You don't, that. you don't do anything to accomplish that. With all of our imperfections, he loves us. The second thing that the gospel does for us, it gives us strength for our present. Uh, the passage says that God saved us and he called us. He called us to live a certain life for his purposes. Do you remember when Jesus called us to go and make disciples? He also promised us that he would go with us. He said that when you want to be scared, I'll make you strong. When you desire to be foolish, I'll give you wisdom. My spirit that's alive in you will make you courageous when all you want to do is cave to the fear of maximum dynamic pressure in your life. I like the way Matt Proctor describes this. He does it with another story, so bear with me. He says this, in the 1992 Summer Olympics in Barcelona, Derek Redmond of Great Britain was a favorite to win the 400 meter race. The runners line up, the guns sound, and Derek quickly seizes the lead. But with 175 meters to go, Redmond suddenly pulls up and falls back to the track, clutching his right leg. Many of you remember watching this. He's pulled his hamstring. The the other runners, they've already finished, and the tears begin to stream down his face. His Olympic dream was over. Up in the stand, Derek's father, Jim, watches in disbelief. immediately, he begins racing down from the top row of the track, bumping some of the people, sidestepping others in a hurry. He would later on say, nothing was gonna stop me. Down on the track, Derek grimaces in pain but he refuses the medical crew and the stretcher. Instead, in the next moment, he stands up, and he lifts himself to his feet, and he begins to hobble down the track, hopping on one leg. He's not, limping. he's not limping to the side of the track to drop out. No, he's going to finish this race on one leg. He will cross that finish line no matter what. The crowd stands to its feet, begins to cheer. Derek hobbles on, each step slower than the first his face twisted in pain, tears streaming down his face. Then, unexpectedly, another figure runs out onto the track. It's his dad. Evading the security personnel, he now runs alongside Derek. The father puts his arm around the son, and the son collapses, crying, into his dad's shoulder. Then, together, arm in arm, with 65,000 people cheering and crying, father and son. the father he gives us strength to endure the pressure because he comes right up alongside of us every step of the way nothing you're facing you have to face alone the last thing it gives us is a hope for our future a hope for our future he says that jesus is returning and he'll resurrect and when he resurrects we're going to resurrect you realize that That because of Jesus, he's the only person that ever resurrected the way he resurrected. You're like, well, there were other resurrections in the Bible, Rob. There were, but they all led to a second death. C.S. Lewis wrote, I think Lazarus had the short end of the stick. He experienced death, he resurrected, had to experience it all over again, but not Jesus. When Jesus defeated death, he would die no more. And he promised when we experience death, we will die no more. We will resurrect from the dead brand new, brand new. And I wish more Christians had this in mind. I wish more Christians would live with, less than, with more than 70 years in mind, more than 70 to 80 to 90 years if we're really lucky. I wish we would live with an eternal perspective, that we would see that this life it has an impact on a much bigger life. I wish that we would have this hope that heaven is so much more than the world describes it to be, that we will be in the presence of Jesus, the one who actually died for us and resurrected for us, but here we've habituated to it. So we think about heaven, and it's like, yeah, that's cool, but I've got a life to live here, and we don't long for it. Do you remember the Apostle Paul when he would talk about heaven? It's as if he was writing, and he stopped, and it was like he burst out in song to sing songs when he would talk about it. When he wrote to the church at Philippi, to the Philippians, he would write, man, for me to live is Christ. If I have to live, I'm going to do everything for Jesus, but to die. and that's gain, because I get to go be with him in his presence. I get to stand there as he welcomes me, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. I like the way that John Piper challenges people with this. This is a really challenging quote. He says this, in order, we've habituated, and he illustrates it with this. He says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends that you've ever had on earth and all the food that you ever liked on earth and the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and the natural beauties that you ever saw and all the physical pleasures that you ever tasted and no human conflict and no natural disasters, could you be satisfied in heaven if Christ... We're not there. Heaven's not about our comfort. It's about His glory. When we get to be in His presence and perfection because of what He's done. Without Jesus, there is no heaven. What's your view of eternity? How is it affecting your present? How is it giving hope for your future and grace for your past. Friends, pressure's coming and it really weighs heavy on us. It really does. But when we have eternity in mind, not just this heaven of comfort, but this place of glory where Jesus will greet us. The one who came and made this life worth living and the next life worth hoping for, changes everything. Paul concludes, he says, follow the pattern Sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. He's the one who will give you the strength to live this life. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Don't habituate to the power, of the gospel in your life. Like the way one author said it, he said, after reading this, you've got to think that Timothy would have read this letter knowing where Paul was and just sat and shook his head and just slightly whispered, that's amazing. I want that reaction. I leave you with one application point 1 question for you to wrestle with all week long. What does it look like for us to follow this pattern and that one question is this I want you to ask it in every arena of your life what would it be different if Jesus were to rule and reign here? What would be different if everything about this area of my life were about him? When you walk into your workplace, what would be different if Jesus were to rule and reign in my workplace? What would be different when I go home and with my marriage? What would be different if Jesus were to rule and reign in my marriage? When I have a one-on-one with my children, what would be different if Jesus were to rule and to reign with the relationship I have with my children? What would be different if Jesus were to rule and to reign with my friend groups or my sports team or my uh, social club, whatever it is, What would it be different if Jesus were to rule and to reign here? And here's what I want you to do. As you answer that question and you have an idea of what would it look like, I want you to conform your entire life to that pattern. That's your mission. That's how you guard yourself from habituating. You say, Jesus, I want you to rule and reign in every arena of my life. What does it look like for you to rule and reign? And I'm gonna conform every part of my life to allow you to rule and to reign in this place. Imagine what would be different about your marriage. Just picture what would look different about your home and your workplace and all these other areas of your life. How great would it be if Jesus were to rule and to reign there?